0: The OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at onscriptpodcast. And stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com onscript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Onscript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Uh, thanks so much to Jason Stark for producing this episode. Jason, we really appreciate all the hard work you put into this. Uh, And also, for those of you who are going to be at the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature, American Academy of Religion in San Antonio in November on the Sunday night, I believe it's the 19th of November, we're going to have a live podcast event um, with food and drinks and a recording of an episode uh, in San Antonio. So for those of you in that area or coming to that uh, meeting. Keep your ears open for more information about that. We'll be sharing that as time goes on. Okay, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome back to on Script. This is Matthew Bates, your co-host for today. In Mark 4, Jesus and his disciples embark on a boat. But Mark reports that a furious squall came up, waves were breaking over the boat, it nearly swamps the boat, and Jesus, meanwhile, is sleeping in the stern. The disciples wake him up distressed. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? But Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves. Quiet, be still. Then the wind dies down, is completely calm, and the disciples um, are just at a loss. They're terrified, and they ask each other, who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The disciples wonder, who is this? That's a question that's echoed again and again in the Gospels. Arguably, the question, who is Jesus, has shaped Western civilization beyond any other. It's a question that we should, indeed, that we must keep on asking. At least, that's the conviction held by me, and I believe by my two guests today, Stanley Porter and Brian Dyer. Thanks, gentlemen, for joining me.
0: Pleasure to be with you, man.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, Stanley Porter and Brian Dyer are co-authors of a new book, Origins of New Testament Christology, an introduction to the traditions and titles applied to Jesus, published by Baker Academic in 2023. Tell me the story, gentlemen, of how you teamed up to write this book. Yeah, that's a
0: good question. Brian, go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, uh, well State and I know each other from
2: uh, when I studied at McMaster um, almost 10 years ago now. And uh, we were working, uh, he was writing a book on um, uh, the published title, Sacred Traditions in the New Testament. I was helping as a TA very early on. Uh, he, he was moving from lectures uh, into publishing those lectures in a book. And so I was uh, working with him on that. I, I contributed a chapter, and his fate had it. Eventually, it went to Baker, where I was his editor as well. And as we worked on that project, I believe it it, it came out. And I kind of pitched the idea, noticing that there were several chapters which were having to do with Christology, the question of who Jesus is, um, and the, the different traditions that are being applied um to Jesus in the New Testament. And so I think I, I I pitched to Stan us kind of building on that earlier book, making one that's that's a bit that was a pretty technical academic book. And so writing a more accessible introduction to these traditions, expanding what uh, was done in the earlier book, and yeah, just kind of dividing up the chapters and and, and writing what what came the origins of New Testament Christology. Uh, Stan, is that how you recall things?
0: That sounds plausible. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of how it happened. Uh, we we were working together. Yeah, Brian was there here uh, with us at McMaster Divinity College, and he and I hit it off. We'd uh, done some things, talked a lot because Brian was in a particular class that I taught and. We started to see some things from similar perspectives, and so it made a lot of sense for us to, uh, to work together on some things. And it worked very, very well coming up with the sacred traditions. But I think one of the things that struck us in doing that was that there were uh, a lot of traditions, and it was worth thinking about the traditions and how those traditions uh, developed and how they were appropriated in various ways in the New Testament— and so I think Brian's right that he'd sort of suggested the idea. And this gave us a chance to uh, expand into some other areas, as well as uh, rethink some of the, uh, the topics that we covered in the Sacred Tradition book. Uh, but uh, one of the th- great things about it was the chance to work with, with Brian uh, on it. And I, I very much enjoyed that opportunity. I, I have worked with a lot of different people in doing books. And and things. And I think that's really a great thing that often we've missed out on in really biblical studies and or the humanities disciplines more widely is the opportunity to work together. And sometimes we in the humanities we lament the fact that the sciences are pushing us out of the university and pushing us out of culture. But I'm sure this is not the only explanation of it. But one of the things that science subjects do particularly well that we don't do particularly well is work together in labs. And so if we have opportunities to work together, I think it can have a lot of of good. And so uh, I think this is a, a good result. And this is a good evidence of the fact that getting several people together to work on something can be quite profitable. Another thing that was part of it is I was working on another book at the time on New Testament theology. And I was taking a look at it from a linguistic perspective. And so I was thinking about some of those uh, ideas about what is New Testament theology. And of course, Christology is, in a sense, a form of New Testament theology. And so it fits within that. And so the two were compatible. At least I was thinking about some of the same things. We got a chance to work on some of those things at the same time. Although uh, the perspectives taken on them are really uh, quite different. Because uh, in this book, we still have, I think we have a good balance between diachronic and synchronic interests uh, in the book. And we maybe will talk more about that, uh, some of the uh, diachronic and synchronic elements. But in the Christology, we try to combine those. Uh, But in the book on New Testament theology, I was really kind of advocating and exploring uh, a more important role for synchronic exploration as opposed to diachronic. So, Again, those things fit together very nicely.
1: Well, I appreciate the collaborative effort. And sometimes in a um, book that is co-authored, you can easily tell who wrote what part. Uh, I had a difficult time discerning that. I couldn't, in fact, tell who wrote what part. I don't know if you guys divided that out by arm wrestling and deciding who was going to write which chapter. Uh, or, um, yeah, I don't know what your approach looked like there. Um, Anyway, if you want to comment on that briefly, do so as you wish. But I wanted, um, maybe more importantly, uh, as both of you are first-time guests on on OnScript, just briefly to tell me a little bit more, to the degree you wish, your personal story about how you ended up as a biblical scholar. Uh, As I always think, that's a fascinating question um, for people who are, for me, I always love to hear that, but for people who are part of our audience, too.
2: Right. Well, I'll just quickly note. Yeah, we we kind of down the middle split up the the chapters of the book. There's 11 traditions. I could have this wrong. I think I did six and Stan did five and then Stan did a substantial conclusion uh, to it. And it was it was very collaborative in that we wrote initial drafts, sent them to each other, revised um, and then both kind of refined the the final product. So I thought it was a pretty good experience in that regard. Um, I I hadn't co-written a book before my you know i studied at at calvin college studied religion wanted to go on and study um the bible in an academic setting thinking that i would be going into to full-time ministry work from there went to denver seminary and studied with craig blomberg and during that time kind of figured out that really it was um, the more kind of teaching academic side of things that i was really drawn to and so after finishing my ma there was looking for a phd program and got connected with Cynthia Westfall at McMaster and uh, wanted to write on Hebrews. And she, um, uh, you know, is a, is a leading expert in Hebrews and so got the opportunity to, to move out to McMaster. Hadn't met Stan. And other than knowing a little bit about his work in linguistics, didn't know a whole lot, but uh, kind of got put in the middle of this strong academic culture that has a emphasis on linguistics, and um, Stan maybe recall, I think I resisted trying to <laughs> do linguistics, but kind of got sucked in when seeing kind of the merits that different tools and approaches brought. And so uh, finished up there and, and landed in, in publishing, found a, a publishing job at Baker and have found that to be a, a good uh, use of the degree and could te- work with a lot of really good scholars and good projects uh, and also do quite a bit of teaching as well. It's kind of a windy journey, but that's kind of where I've landed where I am. I'll let Stan go.
0: Yeah, well, Matt, you're asking me to basically go into ancient history at this point. But uh, I uh, originally studied uh, English and literature for an undergraduate degree and was heading towards an academic career and uh, started by doing an MA in English, intended to do a PhD in English. And I had a... uh, a real, I don't know what to call it exactly. I guess you could call it a kind of, on a much, much smaller scale, a kind of Pauline Acts 9 experience where uh, it became very clear that uh, I was to stop doing that studying. And uh, I had a particular episode that happened in my life when I suddenly realized I was going to go to seminary. The one problem with that was that at the time I didn't even really know what seminary was. I just knew I was going somewhere. So I, I had to find out uh, what that was, and I ended up going to uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School mm-hmm. in Chicago and did an MA in New Testament. So I continued on the track towards academics, and I wanted to study things that were related to you know, hermeneutical kinds of issues. And so then I went to Sheffield uh, to study, and uh, of course, along the way, I'd done English I'd done a fair number of of Greek and related classes at Ted's, and and when I was there at Sheffield, I had the great experience of actually then being enrolled in both the Biblical Studies Department and the Linguistics Department, and have a supervisor in in each of those. And uh, so uh, my PhD, you know, covered both of those areas, and I've continued to pursue uh, both areas uh, a lot in the work that I've done. Tried to maintain. Uh, a presence in New Testament studies, but uh, often am attracted to and interested in linguistic questions that are related to it.
1: Yeah, I think it's safe to say that um, you've, you've edited written tons of material, but probably best known for all that interfacing with linguistics. And uh, again, um, I think it was probably clear enough from your narratives, your academic pedigree and whatnot, but just for current uh, purposes, so people know where you're at right now. So Stan Porter, Uh, is uh, the president and dean and professor of New Testament and also the Roy A. Hope Chair in Christian Worldview at McMaster Divinity College. And meanwhile, Brian um, is uh, the acquisitions editor for Baker Academic and acquires for Brazos also uh, and has his PhD from McMaster Divinity College. And he's teaching uh, at Calvin um, on a part-time basis. Moving on from there, uh, as we, we begin to maybe dive into your project a bit more, Um, As you point out in the book's introduction, New Testament Christologies, um, there's been lots written. There will be lots written in the future. Yours is an excellent exemplar. But some take a book-by-book approach, and um, I think you point out that some of the, the problems of that can be sheer redundancy, that the text can be somewhat boring as you're covering you know, Matthew's Christology and Luke's Christology. Well, they're the same. A lot of it's the same. Some take a titles approach, right, looking at um, various titles of Jesus, or and others take a chronological approach just trying to just say, okay, this is how it all developed, right? Yours takes a maybe we might call a modified titles approach, or where you focus on traditions, um, and you're you're trying to um, help us see why these traditions that we see in Judaism in the Greco-Roman background are pertinent to the New Testament, not necessarily as a developmental argument, but sometimes as a developmental argument, and there's, there's a lot going on there. Um, so how did you um, settle on that? Um, what do you see as maybe some of the pitfalls in um, other approaches? I mentioned the redundancy issue. Uh, what, what are some pitfalls maybe in previous studies that have focused on title that you were seeking to—because you do have a model, title approach, but I think you're trying to head off certain kinds of problems that have happened in New Testament Christology around a titles approach. Um, What are you you adding new methodologically um, within all that? So speak more about what you're up to with this traditions approach.
2: Yeah, we, you know, in the introduction, we attempt to kind of carve out the space for what our book is attempting to do. One of the things that we point out early on is that we're not attempting to articulate a fulsome Christology, um, but rather are focusing on one uh, particularly important aspect of uh, Christology, that is the Christology that we find in the New Testament. For the most part, we limit our endeavor to the New Testament canon. Um, And within even New Testament Christology, we decided to highlight and focus on the, the traditions that the New Testament writers use as they describe, as they portray Uh, Jesus and begin to answer that question that you mentioned at the beginning. Who is this? We found that fruitful. uh, You know, there there has been some critique of the titles approach um, within kind of recent uh, history within study of of Christology and rightfully so. Uh, We note a couple of those in the book that um, when you focus exclusively on titles, you can fall into some pitfalls such as placing too much theological weight on a particular term or particular title or you can when you're just looking at titles you can lose uh the bigger picture of maybe uh, the narrative and how the different titles are being used within the, the larger narrative and so we tried to take the best things of a titles approach but uh, try to avoid those pitfalls and, and offer something more up-to-date and, con- and more constructive you know for me to, to give a little bit of background i a very influential book for me was Oscar Coleman's Christology of the New Testament. I remember reading that as a student, and things just began to click in my head about the connections between the New Testament, uh, Second Temple Judaism, different uh, Greco-Roman contexts, and it was it was something like a light turned on for me. Now, I know that there are problems with that book and the title's approach itself, uh, but I think there was part of me that wanted to kind of bring back that approach because there is a lot of merit to it and so and maybe in some ways um, the impetus for this book was to do a, a kind of an up-to-date Coleman but really kind of kind of avoid some of the the traps that that those and other approaches fell into um, Stan I don't know if you have thoughts about this particular question
0: I think uh, Brian your answer is a good one on on what we're trying to do with it I I think I would just add first of all, The Kuhlman book is a good example, and I think a kind of a a template in a lot of ways of what we were trying to do. But if you're looking at Kuhlman, you'll see that sometimes um, he gets kind of overly technical and gets kind of lost in the weeds sometimes. And there are some times when it's really kind of hard to figure out exactly where he's going or what he's saying about it. And I think what we were trying to do was maybe. Uh, bring a little bit more generalization so we could tie some things together in some better ways than he had. And this would bring it back to the comment I made earlier about our book kind of having a synthesis between a diachronic and a synchronic element to it. And that maybe helps to speak to this title's approach in the sense that, you know, we look at traditions and we appreciate them. I think in many ways we perhaps are a little bit broader in what we look at than a lot of people do, because we don't just try to explain everything from an Old Testament or a Second Temple Judaism perspective. We're much uh, more open also to the Greco-Roman world context, the influence of Hellenistic uh, culture. But then also, even though we take titles, uh, we try to put them in a reasonable context, and the context of how they are used in various ways with within the New Testament, not just in a book-by-book way, because as you said, Matt, uh, that's right, sometimes it can be pretty redundant if you're looking at at the Gospels, for example, you go Matthew and Mark and Luke and you see a lot of the same things. Uh, But we try to use categories and ways of describing them that will put those, uh, whatever those titles, whatever you want to call them, into a a larger context. And sometimes we see that uh, the result in the New Testament uh, goes against uh, what, its background in some ways, or develops the background in different ways, and so we're we're happy and uh, to see that, and happy to point that out when we see it. Uh, one of the things I've noticed in using some of the alternative approaches uh, in Christology is that, at the end of the day, I think the good thing about like narrative approaches and others is that uh, we need to see the larger context. We We shouldn't be just confined to titles. But titles still often show up quite a bit uh, in such treatments because at the end of the day, you kind of have to identify something or find some way of referring to what it is that you are finding uh, within the New Testament. And so uh, titles probably will always have uh, some kind of a validity and some kind of a, a merit in that kind of approach. And so I'd like to think that we've Found a way to to not get too carried away with it, but find a, a way to put it in an appropriate context.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. I think you guys do a number of things really well um, in the book, and one I think is avoiding pitfalls of the past. And I think um, it's safe to say that maybe Kuhlmann and others were part of an era that really focused on developmental and on Christian origins, and like really trying to spin out a narrative of. How did, how did this all start, right? And um, uh, the history of religion's approach and um, some of the weakness of that can be reducing everything down to causation. And I think you guys are very balanced and wise in saying there are these traditions around and sometimes the New Testament uses the imagery and sometimes it rejects the imagery, sometimes it plays with the, Im-. I mean, there, there's there's a complex nuancing that needs to happen and it does happen, I think, in your book rather than just kind of yeah, turning everything into a cause-effect sort of um, false narrative that's dangerous. Um, uh, anyway, and as part of that too, you're very circumscribed. Like you do, you just deal with the New Testament. You don't, you don't really go on to Chalcedon, other than some some remarks that are necessary along the way, right? Um, you're not trying to lay out the whole history of the Christology of the Church. This is a New Testament Christology, um, and uh, by by saying, staying circumscribed in that way, I think that that's um, helpful for. Um, your audience to appreciate the Bible itself, what it might might have to offer. Along those lines, I wanted to just, for the um, sake of the audiences, um, you know, I, I've read your book, but um, some haven't, and I want to make sure they know what what are these titles we're dealing with um, uh, for Jesus or these traditions, uh, these 11 traditions. So I want to read the 11, um, just so people are aware of um, the categories that you opted to deal with. Um, and so the categories are as follows, and these are the 11 chapters, and first, Jesus the Lord, Jesus the prophet, Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Suffering Servant, Jesus, the Passover Lamb, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior, Jesus, the Last Adam, Jesus, the Word, Jesus, the High Priest. And one of the things that I wondered, and I suspect that others will wonder, um, is was there a serious contender for a 12th, right? Uh, especially because 12 is such a biblical number. Surely you guys could have come up with one more, one more. That's all we needed, one more. Um, so I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I, I would suspect that you had some at least that you, you thought about, that you thought it's just not a theme that we want to deal with or it's not a big enough theme. Uh, what, what were some that almost made the list for you that you ended up uh, saying, no, I don't want to deal with that? Stan, do you recall the ones we rejected? Let's
0: see which were the ones that we rejected.
2: Well, I, I think following Coleman, we had Jesus the Rabbi. Oh yeah. Um, but I, I think we decided that that really wasn't a tradition in the sense that the other ones were. It was uh, we we could have written on that, but it, it yeah it didn't seem to be in the the same kind of category as as the other ones. And the other thing that I could think of, Matt, was. Um, we kind of folded son of David into our Messiah chapter and you could have devoted an entire chapter. And we also um, included Mosaic traditions in the prophet chapter. So we have about half that chapter is looking at Jesus as a, um, as a prophet, like, like Moses. And so some, yeah, some kind of got absorbed into, into other chapters. Um, But rabbi is the only one that I could think of that we planned for and, and, And uh, decided to cut.
0: Yeah, that was in an original, an early form of it table of contents we had for it and then we uh, we did scratch it
1: yeah so you guys decided Jesus isn't a wandering cynic philosopher after all right
0: that one really wasn't a big one on our list
1: that one wasn't top on your list for some reason really no yeah Yeah, we
2: we also we also do wisdom or Sophia traditions in the the Logos or the Word chapter
1: I mean there are others that could have been contenders you know Jesus the philosopher in some broader sense maybe than maybe not a wandering cynic but uh or you know Jesus the sage right uh, something along those lines but um yeah anyway i was just curious if there were certain categories that uh yeah that you had strongly considered but decided there wasn't quite enough so you've satisfied my my curiosity <laughs> sufficiently
0: we clearly are not very uh numerological in our orientation
1: right yeah well and that was another question i had was was there a deliberate choice um to position for instance your first chapter is jesus's lord right some maybe the natural inclination from you know just your average churchgoer might have been like why don't you start with jesus son of god or jesus messiah one of the two right might have been the natural inclination is there a, is there a, a rationale behind the sequencing of the chapters or you're you're obviously mostly trying to create a multifaceted portrait right that, that's really your goal at the end of the day is you really want a multifaceted appreciation and it's the combination of each facet that matters most. But I, I wondered, um, was there a, yeah, anything deliberate behind your sequencing? You know, I wish I had the Coleman book in front of me because
2: he organizes it in terms of Jesus' earthly activity. I think he puts prophet there um, and then his um, post-resurrection activity. I don't remember what. Um, we. I can't recall exactly how we came to the order that we did except for I think I encouraged us to do the Lord chapter first, which is one that Stan wrote. And I think it was the editor in me that I really liked how it was written. And especially at each chapter, we have a little introduction, which we look at a specific passage um, or set of passages, which um, the tradition that we're going to examine arises. And maybe within that illustration that we're using, there's maybe a little confusion about how it's being used or what it means. And that's kind of how we set up each chapter and, and Stan set up that chapter by looking at four different uses of Lord in Matthew, I believe, and just showing some of the complexity of the issues that we're dealing with, where we find, uh, the word Lord used four different ways, some with high Christological value, some, some not, and he kind of introduces that topic. And I thought that was a really good, uh, introduction to some of the larger issues. And so I think I pushed to put that one first. Um, but the rest, I, I can't remember how exactly we landed.
0: Yeah, I, I don't remember either. But I think Brian's recollection is pretty, pretty accurate. The, the the ones that are sort of after Lord were sort of grouped together pretty much from the start. And then Brian suggested moving Lord up to the front, and we did that. And I think then also the ones at the end were there because they perhaps had some of them were were less seen across the whole of the New Testament and perhaps more limited in some of those ways. So it didn't seem logical. To begin with those, we should probably begin with those that would be seen as more central to uh, the message of the of the New Testament.
1: Yeah, well, you just answered a further question I had, which was whether you saw certain categories as more central than others. And so clearly you do. Yeah, so I I want to. I'm going to just change the pace here. We'll do a speed round just for fun, and then obviously got some more content oriented questions that I want to throw at you. But we'll start with. Do you want to go first, uh, Stan, for the speed round? We'll put you. We'll put you up first. Sure. Why? Ready? All right. So, Stan, you have to dress up uh, and pretend to be a villain for a masquerade party. Um, Which villain are you going to choose to portray?
0: Well, I am not a really big person in popular culture so i'm sure you're looking for somebody who's out there in popular culture. So, but i have absolutely no idea who is there you have no villains so um well yeah no a villain i don't know who would be yeah. a villain i don't uh,
1: yeah. you know like uh you know there's a batman it could be you know the joker it could be your villain yeah. i mean <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 let you off the hook we'll let you sorry off the, about we'll that we'll let you off the yeah. hook uh, batman, all right um is
0: batman a villain I would have thought Batman would no, have No, been.
1: Batman's Batman. good. Batman's yeah. good. Joker. Joker, Joker would, have uh, would be a villain, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, okay, all right. So number two, question number two. Um, now, you've attended a lot of SBL conferences in your life, doubtless. Uh, what is the most awkward thing about attending an SBL conference?
0: The most awkward thing about it? Yeah. Oh, gosh. The most awkward thing about SPL things is probably how many people there are there going in all sorts of different directions. And if you want to meet with somebody, you better stop them right then because the chance of seeing them again sometime during the three or four days is, is fairly minimal. And uh, that changes your whole way of walking through a building because it becomes very difficult to actually take a line and get someplace because you end up probably having to stop and at least wave or talk or shake hands with, with people.
1: It's a it's an ocean of people, no doubt. All right, so Stan, give me the book or author outside of Bible or theology uh, that you think is worth reading, a book or an author that you enjoy outside Bible or theology.
0: Oh, there's so many of them because uh, I try to read lots of things uh, outside of Bible and theology all the time, and I'll I'll exclude linguistics as well since I Read a fair bit there. But a great book, I think, is Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Mm. And I really recommend that book to everyone to read.
1: Bold, bold choice. All right. What what stands a trend in society that scares you? Something going on in our society that scares you?
0: Well, I was going to say social media, but... uh, Social
1: media. It scares me, too. we are. That's a good answer. Now, we're not on social media right now. Um, Someone might be finding our interview on social media, but... We're, we're using video conferencing technology. That doesn't count.
0: Oh, is that right? I see. Only when it's posted does it become... Yeah, product. only when it's
1: posted. Yes. Yeah, only when it's posted. This is, this is much more deeply personal. Yeah, well, that's
0: what I would... I think even some of the research recently is endorsing the fact that everybody thought it was a way of connecting people, and the end result that it has is it's actually disconnecting people yeah. more and more. And if you... My comment earlier about collaboration in humanities disciplines... If we think that's of any value, and you may not, but if you do, then we're moving in the exact opposite direction from that. And so I think that has implications for the way we do scholarship, the way we teach Bible theology or even other humanities subjects, maybe even the way we uh, live our lives as Christians, etc.
1: All right. So you're going to the grocery store, Stan, and you get to buy yourself
0: one and only one treat. What are you buying yourself? Well, that's a great question. I think the last, uh, I don't do the shopping for stuff, so I'm not even sure what's in there. Well, but This is an even better
1: opportunity then because you finally get to get what you want. Yeah,
0: probably, probably a lint dark chocolate.
1: Solid. Well, I, I like 70% uh, yeah.
0: you know, cocoa or better. So. Yeah, just,
1: just just keep adding up the cocoa. You can't do, you can't exactly. go wrong with that. Exactly.
0: Can't go much wrong with
1: that. All right. And, and if your mother was to walk into your office right now, if she were able to do that, Stan, what would she say about it?
0: Oh, my mother would say what she told me one time when she walked into my bedroom when I was in high school and saw my clothes everywhere. She said, "Oh, where have I failed?" And if uh, <laughs> she walked into my office, she'd say the same thing because uh, as I look around, and thankfully you can't see it, I can uh, see there some. are books everywhere. Oh, I can and, see some. Well, you can see some, but they look relatively they ordered compared to what you can <laughs> see behind you. There,
1: yeah, I'm hiding some mess too. Actually, um, yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for playing along there. You'll have to think about your your villain, you know, question more. Maybe, you know, email me back and tell me oh, yeah. you know, which oh, villain you want to be. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, as we continue on here, uh, I, I want to think about uh, your chapters here. Um, and, you know, chapter one is on Jesus as Lord. We already discussed Chapter two, though, um, might surprise people as it may be a category that people, at least maybe your average church goer is not going to like classify Jesus as this. And it's Jesus's prophet. Um, why is that such an important category still for the church to hold up? Like, what are we losing if we miss out on Jesus's prophet? Oh, what an interesting question. Um, yeah, you may be right. What, what's, I guess
2: what I find interesting is when you read, especially the gospel narratives, when the, the question is asked who Jesus is, the responses that you get are are usually within the realm of some kind of prophet, right? So that whole exchange where uh, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the response is that you're John the Baptist, you're a prophet of old, or I think Elijah. Matthew maybe says Jeremiah or Elijah. And they all put him, or they say, or some other prophet or some other kind of prophet. So there was definitely, that was the category that it appears Jesus was put in by his contemporaries. And so it, it seemed like a relevant category to discuss. I mean, similarly, when um, Herod is is hearing about Jesus, mm-hmm. right? The same kind of categories presented. Some say he's John the Baptist come back. Some say he's a prophet like Moses or... Um, and so it seemed like important to talk about how does Jesus fit within this prophetic tradition, especially within this idea of th- that we find in Second Temple Judaism, where there was a sense that there was a kind of a golden age of the prophets, you know, during the, the monarchy, the divided monarchy, and that it had kind of gone quiet, although there were prophets or self-proclaimed prophets. But there was certainly some expectation that, you know, with the coming Messiah or with uh, kind of wrapped up in Day of Yahweh, there would be a return of this prophetic age or prophetic spirit, and so we kind of tied Jesus as prophet within that expectation as well. Um, and seeing that, I think we wrap up that chapter by saying Jesus seemed to be identified as a prophet. He he doesn't reject that, and he he seems to be um, definitely within that tradition but that's not the complete answer um there, there's more to who Jesus is and so we kind of leave it as as um, or we're kind of like now we need to move on to the other traditions to kind of round out that picture so it seemed like a pretty important especially foundational kind of chapter to explore and and kind of what we have found with a lot of these is there's a lot of overlap right you know we look at each, Tradition, you know, devote a chapter to it. And I think Stan points this out in the conclusion, but there's a lot of overlap where, you know, the expectation about a a coming prophet or prophetic age was tied in with messianic expectations. You can't draw a firm line between these traditions. There's a lot of overlap. And so um prophet was one of those.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we would want to obviously say that Jesus is not less than a prophet, but he's more than a prophet and it's perhaps the church's haste to to move to that next category. We want to get to the more than part, right? But um we don't want to forget that he's not less than a prophet. And um yeah, I think that we um are maybe missing something um at the very least on a historical level. Like if we don't identify Jesus as a prophet, then we're not understanding the nature of his ministry in some foundational way. I liked in that chapter how you guys um, balanced the the tradition, on the one hand, you'll sometimes hear asserted that there were no prophets, you know, that the prophet prophetic age had died. And that's clearly not true when you read Josephus or anything like that. But on the other hand, like you said, you there just seemed to be something to that tradition, right? That the, the golden age of the prophets had um, fallen away. And that's, I think, indicative of the whole book. There's a real balanced wisdom to it um, that that probably comes from uh, long seasons of wrestling with this material from, from both of you. So uh, I appreciated that. And I think that um, I'll point out that this book, I think, is fair to say is is probably number one. The number one audience is probably students, right? As you envision this as a New Testament Christology that professors would assign at, at the, probably the seminary level, maybe the advanced undergrad level to to students. But secondarily, it's certainly for scholars too, as I learned a fair bit from it myself. I mean, it's not like this is my first book I've read in Christology, um, and I think you do um, manage to speak to both audiences quite well. So, congratulations on. Um, on on that achievement.
0: Thanks for your comments on that. If I could just add one thing on that prophet thing, I think also is the the John the Baptist tie uh, between Jesus and John the Baptist. That's an important link in the New Testament, and I would say it's also an important historical kind of link. And John the Baptist, of course, is clearly identified. Whatever view of prophecy you sort of take, he's at that fulcrum point between the two and... And Jesus' ministry in some ways is dependent on, but grows out of, and as you say, moves to the more, but at least is part of the the beginning parts of his ministry. So I think that chapter helps to, to form that as, a, as an important uh, line of, of continuity. And uh, also in Brian's comment, I think it's really important that we try to point out, even in the little bits of conclusions to each of the chapters, that it's very difficult often to try to differentiate some of these titles from each other, especially when they may be used in a similar context. And then it becomes the question of, of how much is one contributing or gaining from the other within that context. And so uh, it's, I guess, part of our effort to try to make it not more complex, but, but fuller and more more accurate in that sense.
1: Yeah and I think that's the maybe the advantage of the traditions approach is that it ends up um yeah instead of it sometimes with some books on christology you feel like it's a reduction like that there is in trying to be precise that you're, you're sort of reducing Jesus down to some developmental story. And I I get the sense of reading yours. I had a fuller Jesus at the end of the day, and that I really appreciated that, that there wasn't that sense that that Jesus has been reduced, but instead radically expanded. Uh, And I think that's, um, that was helpful. We can't obviously cover each chapter in, in the, in the book as we don't have the time, but I thought it would be fun to ask you guys to just maybe speak to your favorite chapters each. Uh, each of you choose um, your favorite uh, with the caveat that you can't choose the two we've already discussed a bit, the, the Kurios chapter and the, the chapter on profit. Uh, choose one and uh, tell me why, uh, why you had fun writing it or why you think it's particularly interesting
0: to uh, your readers. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's hard for me to decide. I kind of like the Passover one a lot, and maybe that's because I've spent an awful lot of time on that particular idea. And it comes from you know, fairly early work that I did earlier in my career. And, and it's become a lot more prevalent in the thought of others about how the Passover motif is, is important. Obviously it focuses an awful lot on John's gospel. And so in that sense, it's a more limited Christological notion Although there are some other, other places, obviously, to, to look at as well, Paul, etc. But I think that's a, a very good one because it it shows that we can explore things where we don't necessarily have a fixed kind of title, a certain set kind of wording, uh, and that's important. We also see there that it has a structuring effect, I think, on the gospel as a whole. And if you identify the different places that we talk about where the Passover uh, lamb idea comes out and Jesus is equated with it, you see that it's at these kind of important turning points, beginning, end, and some in the middle that help to, to guide it. And so writing this chapter, even though you know we'd worked on it before, I'd worked on it before in different ways, it gave me another chance to kind of go through and appreciate uh, what its contribution was. And so uh, in some ways, I mean, I have other ones that I could easily talk about as well, like the Messiah I like a lot, too. But but for that reason, I think it, it has a contribution that probably is not typical of other Christologies.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I feel like I could talk about a lot of them. But, you know, I, I really liked the second or last Adam chapter. And one of the reasons I liked it is that it demonstrates two of the different ways that the New Testament writers could incorporate whatever word we want to use a tradition in their presentations or discussions of Jesus. And so in Paul, we get an explicit comparison between uh, Jesus and Adam and talks, you know, gives the title of Jesus as the last Adam. And so we have a very direct, you know, comparison of the two and tied in with ah, soteriological issues. Um, But then when we look at the gospels, we see much more implicit, um, imagery being used in, with Jesus and a lot of uh, Adamic imagery, a lot of creation. The creation account tradition is very important for the New Testament writers in seeing what Jesus has done as as, um, as restoring the creation of new creation. And so I liked that chapter in that, that we saw two very different ways of using uh, a a tradition uh, to apply to Jesus one explicit one implicit and they use it a little differently but um I thought it was interesting um kind of the way that 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 one played out
1: I like how um throughout the book you have these helpful sidebars that were mostly all, if I remember maybe they were all primary source material yeah you know, so in your last adam chapter you know you you show trajectories um your your focus is on the new testament itself but you show trajectories into the early patristics showing how Irenaeus use the last Adam motif, for instance, and you'll give primary source quotation from Irenaeus. So that really enriched the study, and I think it will serve um, both students and scholars well to have those primary source texts just handy. Right. even if we've read them before, you know, there's something about having them right at hand that um, you're, we're going to be lazy most of the time. Even if we see the reference to Irenaeus, we're not going to look it back up, right? Um, but when it's right there in a sidebar, I mean, how, how easy is it to just read? So um, I, do, uh, I do appreciate that. Um, well, as we, um, we begin to kind of wrap up a little bit, i got two wrap-up questions um, for us. One would be how you think your project contributes then to um, New Testament Christology as a whole as part of an ongoing you know, uh, conversation, the discipline. I mean, there's lots of ways you could talk about this. You know, we have um, you know Bauckham's Christology of Divine Identity. We have Hurtado's work. Uh, Mike Bird has a very recent book, which uh, you guys weren't able to engage because yours came out you know pr- simultaneous to his virtually. Uh, but he has this you know, focus that he wants to kind of call New Testament um, scholars to do more ontology work, uh, and so lots of lots of a rich conversation going on in the guild. We have people like you know um, Jared Daniel Kirk and James McGrath who are more on the adoptionist end of things almost, and uh, yeah, lots to think through. Um, So how do you position yourselves in that debate or that ongoing conversation, or what are a couple of the most important things that you want to say about how you see yourself positioned?
0: I'll go first. Um, That's a good question. I think there are a couple of things that I'd want to talk about. One is, and Brian mentioned it earlier, that we're really concentrating on the New Testament. And so we're trying to say, if we look at these New Testament texts and read them uh, in light of their complex contexts, and those contexts involve not just Judaism, but they involve the the wider Greco-Roman world of which Judaism was a part. Uh, We have these traditions, and I like the fact that we've gone with traditions rather than just um, Old Testament or some kind of a citation thing, anything like that. And so we're open to traditions being, yes, Uh, originating with old testament jewish thought but also there were greco-roman traditions and uh, we want to appreciate those and then see that in the biblical text we have then this reflection of who jesus is and the various authors presenting him in their various ways and they're coming to terms with this and so that is i think our primary uh, contribution people can look at that and say well you know if Jesus is seen to be this, what does that mean then for the, the New Testament, the New Testament uh, authors? We didn't try to, you know, be simplistic and use the term reductionistic earlier. Uh, we tried to be legitimately uh, complex, I think, but trying to bring clarity uh, to them. And so I think at the end of the day, if, if people can have a greater appreciation of how the New Testament views Jesus, I think that'll be a great contribution And we do take a high Christological view. We're very upfront about that from the outset and in the conclusion. Uh, We're not so much interested in the question that some others are in this whole question of, you know, how Jesus became God idea, Uh, although it's certainly related. We're more interested in, you know, how the New Testament authors reflect Jesus, and we think they reflect him in a particular way, but not trying to understand it in terms of explaining it according to necessarily what you know how Jews would have fit Jesus within their, you know, their monotheism of the time or whatever it might have been. It's an interesting question, um, but but not necessarily our question, and so we don't really provide an answer for that. But I think what we do stands on its own in that way. And as you said, our audience probably is seminary students. We'd like to think there are some things in it that would be good for for scholars as well. But uh, if seminary students can go away. With this idea about the New Testament, I think we'll be we'll be pleased with the result.
1: Yeah, you do very much. Um, yeah, it's there's, it's explicitly an early high Christology, so you would line up with you know what Hurtado and company, bacham and company, in, in your conclusions. Um, but yeah, it does seem like you're not um, you're trying to yeah offer a new model like bacham would. You're more trying to present the data. Like this is this is how Jesus is portrayed as God, right? Um, seems to be more where you're trying to land. Brian, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah. I, uh, I would just add, you know, we we ended up titling the book Origins of New
2: Testament Christology. And I think that points to, we, we kind of see this as a kind of initial foundational endeavor for um, those doing the work of Christology or understanding the New Testament Christology. And we've talked a little bit about how titles can play a role in traditions, but we kind of thought that, especially for students who are new, who don't know these conversations, you kind of, a good starting point is here. Um, And then of course, there are other aspects that um, we hope others will um, pursue after having laid the groundwork here a little bit. But yeah, that's kind of how I see it and situate it. And Stan does a good job in the concluding chapter of bringing some of this together in comparison with recent trends in the study of Christology. So I think certainly point to that
1: yeah and i think it succeeds especially uh, if seminarians are your target audience this will give them a very clear um and wise as i said introduction um last question for you guys then if a pastor were to preach through your book selecting maybe a theme a week for a series like maybe they choose they want to you know do jesus's word jesus's you know um the messiah well you know they want to work through the book and sequentially um work on these traditions um, uh, what would you hope to see them emphasize throughout the series? Not necessarily like, okay, I wanted to emphasize this for each chapter, but what are you hoping Like, is the thread that holds together what they're trying to say in a sermon series? Right. Well, I, I guess I have two thoughts. I don't know if it
2: directly answers your question. Uh, the first is that I, I imagine a lot of these titles are familiar to most Christians, most people in, 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 um, in a church, but maybe they, they don't quite know... Or they have certain assumptions about what "son of man" means, or um, and so I would see that, or I would think there's a lot of kind of opportunity to, I don't know, fill out the picture a bit or give some important kind of theological background for words or concepts that maybe they've heard a lot but don't fully understand. And I think one of the things that we try to do that I would hope that somebody preaching this would do is is very careful about. We didn't want to come across as saying. These traditions, as we kind of trace them and look at them, always had an end goal of, you know, application to Christ or, you know, kind of uh, the Adam imagery is a good one. So we we have different kind of traditions about Adam in Second Temple literature, but there's, you know, there was an assumption at one point that it all kind of led to Paul. And so one of the things that I think is important is that we understand these traditions kind of on their own terms first before we can understand how the new Testament writers applied them or adapted them or, you know, whatever term we want to use. Um, because that, that seemed really important. And that seemed like a a pitfall that's too easy to fall into that, that these were always had a Messiah or Jesus in view, but rather they had a life of their own, you know, in second temple Judaism leading up to the time of Christ that that needs to be appreciated. So I would hope that that comes out as well. Stan, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good answer, Brian. I It probably depends on the kind of church you're talking about, how somebody's going to preach these kinds of things. But it seems to me I hope that they would come away at the end and not just uh, think, here are various ways that I may have heard before or been brought up thinking about who Jesus is. You know, okay, Jesus is Lord, you know, which can sound a little bit trite sometimes or, you know, Son of God language or something or Son of Man language, which a lot of people probably don't even really know what that is indicating or meaning, but come away from it thinking that, in fact, you know, it was there were a lot of people talking about a lot of these ideas, and the New Testament authors wanted to really tell you who they thought Jesus was, and they really wanted to answer that question, you know, who is Jesus? And they did so in phenomenal ways and indicated uh, who Jesus was as a phenomenal Divine man, and uh, not in the pejorative sense, but that he was divine and he was human, and the the fullness and the greatness, and and all of what that means. Not that Jesus, you know, traded hats. For example, now I put on my Messiah hat, now I'm going to put on my prophet hat or whatever. But that in who he was, and in what he did, and how he interacted with people, and how he interacted with God, he. You know, demonstrated in what he said and did just the the fullness of of what that meant to be this divine human figure. And people could appreciate that and see that and and perhaps in, in various ways connect more fully to who Jesus is and to God through that.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. Thank you, Brian. And I, I think pastors will find this to be a helpful resource. Um, a lot of what what pastors are doing when they're doing their job well is explaining what words we use every day in church actually mean, right? Words like faith and grace. And uh, we use these words all the time. But yeah, some of these words like Lord and um, like Christ and like Savior, they need to be unpacked for people. Um, so that they don't just become meaningless slogans that have no content. right we need to we need to mobilize true content for them. Um, and I appreciate um, how well this work uh, contributes to that ongoing um, effort to teach and to teach well in the church. So thank you um so much, Brian and Stan, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure, Matt. Absolutely. This is Matthew Bates for OnScript. I've been speaking with Stanley Porter and Brian Dyer about their new book, Origins of New Testament Christology, an introduction to the traditions and titles applied to Jesus, published in 2023 by Baker Academic. It's a multifaceted approach that is thorough, well-organized, and wise. There are links for purchasing on our website, www.onscript.study. Thanks, friends, for listening.